Part three, chapters nine and ten of Democracy in America, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Democracy in America, volume two, by Alexis de Tocqueville, translated by Henry Reeve. Part three, chapter nine. Education of Young Women in the United States No free communities ever existed without morals, and, as I observed in the former part of this work, morals are the work of women. Consequently, whatever affects the condition of women, their habits and their opinions, has great political importance in my eyes. Amongst almost all Protestant nations, young women are far more the mistresses of their own actions than they are in Catholic countries. This independence is still greater in Protestant countries like England, which have retained or acquired the right of self-government. The spirit of freedom is then infused into the domestic circle by political habits and by religious opinions. In the United States, the doctrines of Protestantism are combined with great political freedom and a most democratic state of society, and nowhere are young women surrendered so early or so completely to their own guidance. Long before an American girl arrives at the age of marriage, her emancipation from maternal control begins. She has scarcely ceased to be a child when she already thinks for herself, speaks with freedom, and acts on her own impulse. The great scene of the world is constantly open to her view. Far from seeking concealment, it is every day disclosed to her more completely, and she is taught to survey it with a firm and calm gaze. Thus the vices and dangers of society are early revealed to her, and she sees them clearly. She views them without illusions, and braves them without fear for she is full of reliance on her own strength, and her reliance seems to be shared by all who are about her. An American girl scarcely ever displays that virginal bloom in the midst of young desires, or that innocent and ingenuous grace which usually attends the European women in a transition from girlhood to youth. It is rarely that an American woman at any age displays childish timidity or ignorance, like the young women of Europe, she seeks to please, but she knows precisely the cost of pleasing. If she does not abandon herself to evil, at least she knows that it exists, and she is remarkable rather for purity of manners than for chastity of mind. I have frequently been surprised, and almost frightened, at the singular address and happy boldness with which young women in America contrive to manage their thoughts and their language amidst all the difficulties of stimulating conversation. A philosopher would have stumbled at every step along the narrow path which they trod without accidents and without effort. It is easy indeed to perceive that, even amidst the independence of early youth, an American woman is always mistress of herself. She indulges in all permitted pleasures, yet without yielding herself up to any of them, and her reason never allows the reins of self-guidance to drop, though it often seems to hold them loosely. In France, 
where remnants of every age are still so strangely mingled in the opinions and tastes of the people, women commonly receive a reserved, retired, and almost cloistral education, as they did in aristocratic times. And then they are suddenly abandoned, without a guide and without assistance, in the midst of all the irregularities inseparable from democratic society. The Americans are more consistent. They have found out that in a democracy the independence of individuals cannot fail to be very great, youth premature, tastes ill-restrained, customs fleeting, public opinion often unsettled and powerless, paternal authority weak, and marital authority contested. Under these circumstances, believing that they had little chance of repressing in woman the most vehement passions of the human heart, they held that the surer way was to teach her the art of combating these passions for herself. As they could not prevent her virtue from being exposed to frequent danger, they determined that she should know how best to defend it. And more reliance was placed on the free vigor of her will than on safeguards which have been shaken or overthrown. Instead, then, of inculcating mistrust of herself, they constantly seek to enhance their confidence in her own strength of character. As it is neither possible nor desirable to keep a young woman in perpetual or complete ignorance, they hasten to give her a precocious knowledge on all subjects. Far from hiding the corruptions of her world from her, they prefer that she should see them at once and train herself to shun them, and they hold it of more importance to protect her conduct than to be over-scrupulous of her innocence. Although the Americans are a very religious people, they do not rely on religion alone to defend the virtue of women. They seek to arm her with reason also. In this they have followed the same method as in several other respects. They first make the most vigorous efforts to bring individual independence to exercise a proper control over itself and they do not call in the aid of religion until they have reached the utmost limits of human strength. I am aware that an education of this kind is not without danger. I am sensible that it tends to invigorate the judgment at the expense of the imagination, and to make cold and virtuous women instead of affectionate wives and agreeable companions to man. Society may be more tranquil and better regulated, but domestic life often has fewer charms. These, however, are secondary evils, which may be braved for the sake of higher interests. At the stage at which we are now arrived, the time for choosing is no longer within our control. A democratic education is indispensable to protect women from the dangers with which democratic institutions and manners surround them. CHAPTER Ten: THE YOUNG WOMAN IN THE CHARACTER OF A WIFE In America, the independence of woman is irrevocably lost in the bonds of matrimony. If an unmarried woman is less constrained than elsewhere, a wife is subjected to stricter obligations. The former makes her father's house an abode of freedom and of pleasure. The latter lives in the home of her husband as if it were a cloister. Yet these two different conditions of life are perhaps not so contrary as may be supposed, and it is natural that the American woman should pass through one to arrive at the other. Religious peoples and trading nations entertain peculiarly serious notions of marriage. The former consider the regularity of woman's life as the best pledge and most certain sign of 
the purity of her morals. The latter regard it as the highest security for the order and prosperity of the household. The Americans are at the same time a puritanical people and a commercial nation. Their religious opinions, as well as their trading habits, consequently lead them to require much abnegation on the part of woman, and a constant sacrifice of her pleasures to her duties, which is seldom demanded of her in Europe. Thus, in the United States, the inexorable opinion of the public carefully circumscribes woman within the narrow circle of domestic interest and duties, and forbids her to step beyond it. Upon her entrance into the world, a young American woman finds these notions firmly established. She sees the rules which are derived from them. She is not slow to perceive that she cannot depart for an instant from the established usages of her contemporaries, without putting in jeopardy her peace of mind, her honor, nay even her social existence. And she finds the energy required for such an act of submission in the firmness of her understanding, and in the virile habits which her education has given her. It may be said that she has learned by the use of her independence to surrender it without a struggle and without a murmur when the time comes for making the sacrifice. But no American woman falls into the toils of matrimony as into a snare held out to her simplicity and ignorance. She has been taught beforehand what is expected of her, and voluntarily and freely does she enter upon this engagement. She supports her new condition with courage, because she chose it. As in America paternal discipline is very relaxed, and the conjugal tie very strict, a young woman does not contract the latter without considerable circumspection and apprehension. Precocious marriages are rare. Thus American women do not marry until their understandings are exercised and ripened, whereas in other countries most women generally only begin to exercise and ripen their understandings after marriage. I by no means suppose, however, that the great change which takes place in all the habits of women in the United States, as soon as they are married, ought solely to be attributed to the constraint of public opinion. It is frequently imposed upon themselves by the sole effort of their own will. When the time for choosing a husband is arrived, that cold and stern reasoning power, which has been educated and invigorated by free observation of the world, teaches an American woman that a spirit of levity and independence in the bonds of marriage is a constant subject of annoyance, not of pleasure. It tells her that the amusements of the girl cannot become the recreations of the wife, and that the sources of a married woman's happiness are in the home of her husband. As she clearly discerns beforehand the only road which can lead to domestic happiness, she enters upon it at once, and follows it to the end, without seeking to turn back. The same strength of purpose, which the young wives of America display, in bending themselves at once and without repining to the austere duties of their new condition, is no less manifest in all the great trials of their lives. In no country in the world are private fortunes more precarious than in the United States. It is not uncommon for the same man, in the course of his life, to rise and sink again through all the grades which lead from opulence to poverty. American women support these vicissitudes with calm and unquenchable energy. It would seem that their desires contract as easily as they expand with their fortunes. Footnote A. See Appendix S. The greater part of the adventurers, who migrate every year to people the western wilds, belong, as observed in the former part of this work, 
to the old Anglo-American race of the northern states. Many of these men, who rushed so boldly onwards in pursuit of wealth, were already in enjoyment of a competency in their own part of the country. They take their wives along with them, and make them share the countless perils and privations which always attend the commencement of these expeditions. I have often met, even on the verge of the wilderness, with young women who, after having been brought up amidst all the comforts of the large towns of New England, had passed, almost without any intermediate stage, from the wealthy abode of their parents to a comfortless hovel in a forest. Fever, solitude, and a tedious life had not broken the springs of their courage. Their features were impaired and faded, but their looks were firm. They appeared to be at once sad and resolute. I do not doubt that these young American women had amassed, in the education of their early years, that inward strength which they displayed under these circumstances. The early culture of a girl may still therefore be traced, in the United States, under the aspect of marriage. Her part is changed, her habits are different, but her character is the same. End of Part 3, Chapter 10